a good sign that maybe we're doing something wrong and we should start over. Today I want to talk about humility. So a doctor, brand new doctor, just graduated medical school. He uh, immediately opened up a clinic. And outside his clinic, he put a big sign, and on the sign it read, Dr. News Medical Clinic. Get treated for 500 If not cured, get $1,000 back. Now, across the street was Dr. Old's Medical Clinic. And Dr. Old was very annoyed with Dr. New because he thought, who is this guy just out of med school? He doesn't know what he's doing. How dare him just immediately open up a medical clinic? I've got 50 years of experience. I'm going to go over there and show that guy a thing or two and maybe get $1,000. So Dr. Old went across the street and he went in and he met with Dr. New and he said, Dr. New, I have a problem. He said, I have lost all taste in my mouth. So Dr. New said, nurse, please bring me box number 22, take the medication out of it, put three drops in his mouth. The nurse took the medication out of box number 22, put three drops in his mouth, and instantly Dr. Old spit it out and he said, what do you think you're doing? That's gasoline. And Dr. New said, congratulations, you've been healed. That'll be $500. (laughs) Angry, Dr. Old left and stewed on it for a few days, and he came back, he said, I got to i got to show this guy a thing or two. Who does he think he is? So he went back again. He said, Dr. New, I have another problem. What is it? I have been forgetting things. I'm losing my memory. Dr. New said, nurse, bring me box number 22. Take the medication out. Put three drops in his mouth. He said, no way. You're not going to do that. That's gasoline. What do you think you're doing? Dr. New said, congratulations. You've been cured. (laughs) That'll be $500. So finally, Dr. Old is infuriated at this point. He, he just can't believe it. So he's thinking about, how am I going to trick? Tr- I got to trick this guy. I got to get him. So he comes over the third time and he says, Dr. New, I'm losing my eyesight. I can hardly see a thing. Well, to his surprise, Dr. New says, I, wow, you got me. on. I, I don't have a cure for that. I, I can't help you with that. I'm really sorry. Here's your $1,000. Well, Dr. Old was feeling chuffed. He was, he was proud of himself. And as he was walking out counting his money, he realized it was only 500. And he turned around and said, hey, Dr. New, this is only 500. He said, congratulations, you've been cured. That'll be $500. You know, sometimes it's so hard to admit when we're wrong. It takes humility. That's what I'd like to talk about today. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so very much for bringing us together. We pray for humility before you and your word this morning. We pray that your spirit will speak to us and minister to each of us, myself included. Help us to leave here committed to humility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to start reading in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. If you're new, we are in the city of Jerusalem. If you look at our map there, Uh, Jerusalem's down there in the bottom part of the map in an area called Judea. There's two cities there, Jerusalem and Bethany, and pretty much everything we're going to read about from here on out is going to take place in that area. So I have a new map, and here's our new map. This is kind of a blown-up map of the city of Jerusalem. I apologize for the small text. I'm trying to find a good map that would be easy to see for you, but that big rectangular square there with the square, big rectangular shape inside of it is the temple area, and this is where we are today. Now, if you 
don't know, just a quick recap. Jesus has spent three years zigzagging all over Palestine. He's at the, the height of his uh, uh, notoriety. Tens and thousands of people are, 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 wanting, are following him. They're starting to believe that maybe he's the Messiah, the Savior of the people of Israel. Just two days before, on Sunday... He arrived into the city of Jerusalem to much fanfare. There was a giant parade. Thousands and thousands of people came out, called him the Messiah, called on him to rescue them, sang praises to him. The following day, he returned into the temple and he cleared it out. The area called the temple, the courtyard of the Gentiles. He cleared it out of all the money changers and the, and the merchants and the, the caravans that were passing through because they were disrupting the worship of the very people that God wanted and had put on their heart to come and worship and they were being disrupted and they were being treated poorly. And, and Jesus was so irate, he was so angry with that that he cleared the temple. Then he went back home. He stayed the night in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And now it's Tuesday morning and Jesus has returned to the scene of the crime. And I just think for a minute about the boldness of Jesus, that he would have the audacity to walk right back in to that courtyard after what he had just done the day before. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. You know, the, the, the temple authorities, primarily the Sanhedrin, the high priest, uh, they, they in any other situation would have had him immediately arrested and killed, but they couldn't because he was so popular. And like I said, just two days before, he was ushered into a much fanfare and a giant parade. And so they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so what do they do with Jesus now that he shows back up on Tuesday and he's in the temple courts and people are gathering around to hear him and to, and to, and to want to uh, hear what he has to say? Well, they have to do something. They can't ignore this. So they send a delegation to confront him. And, and it's my opinion that this delegation really came from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the most powerful governing body of the Jewish people. It had roots all the way back to the time of Moses. It oversaw many areas, in fact, all areas of Jewish civic, political, and religious life. In Jesus' day, however, their, their authority had been limited by the Roman Empire. They were in control. They controlled the political and much of the civil affairs. But the Sanhedrin still had incredible power and influence over the religious life of everyday Jews. And in those days, religious life was everything. So this meant they still had tremendous influence over the lives of people, including what went on at the temple, the, the worship that occurred there. They had authority not only over that, but they, they also oversaw the religious instruction and practice of everyday people through the, the, the temple system and out into the various provinces where they had synagogues set up. There, there was a pretty firm network, a connection between the temple and what went on in the synagogues and what went on in the temple. And so they oversaw a lot of everyday life and everyday matters and especially religious matters. And another thing they oversaw most notably for our lesson today is they also oversaw the ordination of rabbis and priests. They were highly respected and held considerable authority. And you can see the concern with Jesus that they had. And on one hand, I appreciate their concern because there is 
false teachers that existed in Israel at this time. They came up and taught something that tantalized people's ears, but it was really incorrect. It was really wrong. And, and so the Sanhedrin and their, and their uh, extended uh, uh, um, network of, of, of priests and, and, and uh, teachers and all that, they would have the ability to stop people and vet them out and make sure that they weren't leading others astray. And so on that, on that front, I appreciate that. I appreciate that they had this ability. But on another front, Jesus was a very credible rabbi by this point. I mean, he, didn't, he wasn't a nobody. In fact, they, they might have wanted to think of him as a nobody, as some country boy that grew up in Galilee out in the sticks. But, but even at a young age, people knew there was something special about Jesus. And within the last three years, Jesus proved himself credible. He knew the scriptures. He knew God's word. He taught accurately. Their points of difference had to do with the traditions that were grown up around the commands. But when it came to scripture and commands, Jesus knew his stuff. Not only that, but Jesus... He acted unlike anyone else. He was able to do miracles. John the Baptist was widely revered, and he never performed a miracle that we know of. Jesus took John the Baptist's ministry to a whole other level and performed miracles, raising people from the dead, feeding tens of thousands of people at different occasions, and all kinds of various miracles that he did all over the land of Palestine that were, credit, uh, they were creditable. They were, they were tested and approved and accurate. So Jesus was no upstart as much as they wanted to treat him that way, as much as they wanted to keep him at arm's distance. He was not some uncredible uh, or discreditable person. He, he came with a lot of authority himself. And you can see in this interchange that the argument that they get into, the first thing that they fight about right away is what authority does he have to do the things he was doing and claim the things he was claiming. That was the issue. They went right at it. Head on. This, this delegation of chief priests, teachers of law, elders, representatives of the Sanhedrin, they went right to the heart of the matter. Who is giving you this authority? Now, when you think about that question, it is a bit of a trap, isn't it? I mean, it's certainly condescending. He shows up and they're like, who do you think you are? That was their posture. But but there was a little bit of a trap here because, they, because when they asked him that, that specific question and who gave you the authority to do this or, or by what authority are you doing these things, it's a little bit like the reporter that asked the politician, have you stopped beating your wife yet? How do you answer that question? If you say no, well, then you're admitting to beating her. But if you say yes, you're admitting to have beaten her. And that was kind of the question that they tried to put Jesus, that was the, the corner they tried to paint him in. You know, people with the most to lose often find it hard to be humble. And these guys were threatened by Jesus' presence, by the authority he taught with, by the things that he did, because he was not of their network. He was not in their system. He operated outside of their system. And so they felt very, very threatened by his presence, by what he was doing, by the popularity that he had gotten. And so it was very hard for them to humble out. It was very hard for them to listen to what he had to say. 
When we get invested, we've talked about this in previous messages, when we're invested in something, it's so hard to let it go. I mean, these guys put a lot of time and a lot of energy into what turned out to be a mistake. And that is a hard pill to swallow. That is a hard thing to admit. It's hard enough to say you're wrong, but all the more when you're so ingrained, so invested in what you do. Verse 29, Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask then, why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, before we go down the road of thinking that Jesus was being, uh, you know, offensive here, at the time, this was a very, fairly common and acceptable practice in terms of debate. You could ask a question and answer it with another question. That was an acceptable way of sort of debating out an issue. So Jesus wasn't just being obstinate. He wasn't just being difficult. He was actually following a pretty standard line of conversation when, when someone is challenged. And so what he does is he takes their challenge and he basically gives them the same challenge by asking them a question about John. Now we're talking about John the Baptist. And he asked them, well, where was John's authority from? Now this was troubling for this group of people because they never sanctioned John's ministry either. They saw both Jesus and John as operators outside of normal channels. They were unordained. They were unauthorized entities. And so they never fully embraced what John had to say or do. In fact, when they came out to see John, if you remember from one of our lessons many, 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 many months ago, John's first words to them were, who warned you, you brood of vipers? That's what he called them. Clearly, he was on a different wavelength than they were. So they never embraced what John's message or what his, his method or his ministry was. The challenge was is the people loved John. John was revered. Like Jesus, thousands of people, tens of thousands, came out to see him. Outside the city of Jerusalem in an area called Perea, a few miles away to the east of Jerusalem across the Jordan River. It was a wilderness area. That's where John ministered. And by the thousands, people came out to hear him and to be baptized into his message. And so the thing that they wrestled with was the popularity. John got so popular and he was hard to defeat. He was hard to, to uh, criticize because his message was great. His ministry was great. I mean, what do we say to this guy? So they just sort of tried to ignore him. They tried to treat him as a, an enigma. So if they were to say John was from heaven, then they would expose themselves immediately as, well, why didn't you believe him? You clearly kept him at arm's distance. But if they were to say, well, John's authority came from man, it wasn't, he was a heretic, well, then the people would uproar. Because everybody loved John. John had been killed by this point about a year and a half before, so now he was a martyr. Moreover, when Jesus, at around age 30, left Galilee 
northern Israel to become a rabbi, he traveled south, and instead of going to the city of Jerusalem, he made a hard left into Perea, where he was baptized by John. He was ordained into John's ministry. And afterwards, John said, hey, this guy is, is my superior. And so John literally passed the torch on to Jesus. And so you can see why the Sanhedrin and the established religious leaders of Israel were very uncomfortable with Jesus and his message. Because he was, like John, an operator outside of normal channels. And they didn't know how to, how to work with him. That's why when you read the Gospels, they're often in confronting him. They're often debating with him. They're often trying to figure him out because they're trying to figure out, hey, you're not in our network. You know, what's the deal here? What's going on? And as time went on, they became increasingly antagonistic towards Jesus. But Jesus continued to grow what John had started to the point to where people are calling him the Messiah. As he entered Jerusalem just two days before. And so this group of, of religious leaders, the people that we would, we would trust are humble and God-fearing and we would respect and admire, this group was having the hardest time with the message and ministry of John and now, more importantly, with Jesus. Because they were, they were outside the network. They didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know how to, how to christen them or ordain them or make them orthodox. And not only that, but both John and Jesus were challenging some of what was considered orthodox. Some of the traditions that the, that the religious establishment held as high as commands of God. So there was a real problem here. You know, God will speak to us through a, a variety of ways and people. Some of them are authorized and some of them are not authorized. Some of them come from a, a, a background that we know and trust, but others might not. Our responsibility as Christians, as followers of God, is to be open and to listen. It doesn't mean we believe everything we're told. But we have a fundamental responsibility to listen for the voice of God. Is he trying to speak to me right now? What is he trying to say to me right now? And it may come from some, uh, some, from some, some, uh, from some surprising places. You may think, well, of course, my minister or, of course, my best friend in the church. But what about the coworker who's, in your mind, a total heathen? Sometimes God will speak to you through them. Our responsibility is to listen. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He had, one, he, had, he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So I want you to imagine the scene for a minute. We're in the courtyard of the temple. It was a, a place where people could come and speak. There would be many different messages going on. And in this particular case, Jesus, the most notable speaker of the day, shows up and he's immediately confronted by the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, and instantly they're in a, they're in a debate. Now, I want you to realize that this is a public conversation. This is happening in the hearing of I don't know how many people, but it's notable. It's people are paying attention to this one. You go to a work conference and there's all the, the classes and then there's the keynotes and everybody goes to the keynote speaker, right? This is the keynote speaker of the day in the courtyard. And so there's an audience here. And when Jesus shuts down their challenge, they're sort of sitting there with egg on their face in front of this crowd. And Jesus doesn't stop there. It's as if he turns to the audience and he tells a story. Now, the story is directed at, that, at the religious leaders, those guys in particular, but the religious leaders in general. But he's saying it to a crowd. Now, we call this story a parable. A parable is a story with a point. So don't get caught up in the details. The question is, what is the point he tells this story about a man owning vineyard. He rents it out to some renters. He goes to collect. They, they abuse his servants. Eventually, they kill his son, thinking that maybe, maybe the owner's dead, and then they could take the land for themselves, but the owner's not dead. And at the end of the day, the owner is going to return and kill them. In the strongest possible language, Jesus accused these men and the religious establishment that they represented as getting it wrong. He pointed out that they had a deep-seated pride that prevented them from listening to God. And in the parable, he makes it clear that God has had enough. I cannot stress enough how scandalous this moment must have been in that courtyard. I don't know what the crowd did. It's not recorded, but there must have been a hush. There must have been a gasp. I don't know, but there, must, there was something. Because he stood in, there in, in front of the most powerful, influential people in Israel in their home court at the temple, and he called them apostates. They were heretics. They had missed it. They were off. And God was going to judge them. I think about getting challenged in my life. Maybe you could think about getting challenged in your life. It's not always easy to get challenged. And we never know where it comes from. Sometimes our own kids challenge us. Sometimes our spouse, sometimes a coworker, sometimes a subordinate. It could be a boss, whatever the case may be. But the challenge comes, we get confronted. And I'm assuming if we're similar, and I think we are, that's, that's hard to take in the moment. It's very difficult. Well, Jesus did this in public to the religious leaders in the temple courts. 
I mean, they were called out. I think about how hard it is for me, and most of the things I get challenged on are just menial things. They're not even religious, important matters. They're whatever, something to do with work or something to do with an opinion or whatever. Here, it was their livelihood. It was their life's work. It was their entire belief system that he was calling and condemning. He was calling into ill repute, and he was condemning it. How do you respond when you're challenged? I, it would have been cool to have seen this moment. I don't know what happened. I mean, we don't have the, the, you know, the play-by-play, but apparently they just had to stand there and take it because they were stuck. They had no response. They had no answer to him. Like John, they were stuck in a corner because the people loved him. So if he was from God, why weren't they believing in him? And if he was of his own, why weren't they condemning him? They were trapped. And you can just sort of see them squirming. Verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus doesn't stop. He just keeps going. What he's doing here is something in Jewish tradition called stringing pearls. In those days, people knew their Bibles. In fact, they would memorize whole books of the Bible. And rabbis, when they would teach, because they had, I'm talking not just rabbis, but everyday people, but rabbis, when they would teach, they would make connections in passages based on themes because, and they could do it right there on the spot because they had memorized so much of the scrolls, so many of the scriptures. And so they would, they would see a theme, love or something, and then they could just start connecting various other scrolls to that theme that weren't necessarily related, but because it was a theme, they made a point. They could connect them. We do that when we teach the Bible. We will read something and we'll go, well, let's talk about, you know, the love of Jesus. And we'll kind of skip through things to identify his love, or we'll talk about the compassion, right? We can do that too. They did it on the spot. Here, Jesus is stringing pearls together right there on the spot, and he's quoting a famous song. The song is Psalm 118. It was a song that they sung uh, at the dedication of the second temple. So it was a song that had a lot of meaning to the Israelites. A quick background. The first temple was built by Solomon, and, and after a, a period of time, uh, it was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. And about 70 years later or so, exiles returned to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple at the same spot. And over the years, they kept working on that temple, building it, making it great, because Solomon made it amazing. And they were trying to restore it to its former glory. But over the centuries, they were just kind of remodeling it as they went until Herod the Great, who lived about a generation before Jesus, he turned it into one of the wonders of the ancient world. In another lesson, we're going to talk about the temple. But let me just tell you, it was an, an, an amazing structure. And here they were standing in that very spot, that very same building built on that very spot where the second temple got started centuries before. And where when it was first be built, being built, they sang Psalm 118 as a dedication to the temple. You ever see Tom, um, Top Gun? Remember the scene? I don't know why I connect this. Maybe this is just me weird, but 
that scene where they sing, you've lost that love and feeling? I don't know why, but I kind of picture this. I kind of picture Jesus breaking into Psalm 118 and maybe the disciples in the crowd singing along. I want you to listen to the lyrics because they're quite compelling. I know it's a little small, but I wanted to fit the whole thing in there. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. The house of Aaron was representative of the priesthood. He's speaking to these men. He's reminding them of who they are before God. And he's reminding them of the love of God. Let those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. When hard pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He's my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. Again, he's speaking to them. He's singing to them. He's reminding them lyrics of a song that was beloved that they would have loved. And he's reminding them of the message that trust in God. Don't trust in what you can see. Don't trust in human organizations or, or systems or constructs. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They surrounded me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning out thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. Sounds of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Guys, I know I'm giving it to you hard right now. I know I'm confronting you. I know I'm challenging you. I know I'm calling you out and it's hard, but you're not dying. You're not dead yet. And God chastens those he loves. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter in and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate the Lord which, through which he, the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this every, this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us with bows in hand. Join in the festival procession. Didn't that just happen two days ago? Like, come on, guys, get on board. Up to the horns of the altar. You're my God, and I will praise you. You're my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his love endures forever. Even in the midst of one of the harshest rebukes I can find in Scripture. Even, I mean, even in the midst of this scathing condemnation of this group of people, I see Jesus trying to get through. He's trying to get to their heart. He's trying to call them out of this pride, of this, this holding on, of refusal to admit wrong. He's extending the olive branch. He's not thinking about himself. He knows what's going to happen to him in a few days. But here he is pleading with the very people 
who are going to try to, who are going to take his life. Not for his benefit, but for theirs. That's mission love. That's laying your life down for someone, even those who oppose you, even those who challenge you, even those who call you out, rightly or wrongly. He's reaching out to them. He's trying to pull them out of their error. Verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders looked for a way to arrest him, but because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, they were afraid, and, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Unfortunately, it didn't have any effect. The rest of his day, by the way, and we're gonna, in, in future lessons we're going to see this, he, he has about four or five more arguments like this with religious leaders. He, that's, that was his Tuesday. Sound like your Tuesday? <laughs> arguing with people one after the other. I mean, that was his Tuesday. And pretty much he's done by the end of Tuesday. He leaves, and it's pretty much over at that point. The rest of the time is spent really with the disciples and getting ready for his arrest, which would just happen in a day or two. But even at the, at the last hour, even at the ninth hour, even with the people who were committing the atrocity, even with the people who were so hardened in their, in their position, he was still trying to get through to their heart. We all have people in our life that we, we are going to try till the day they die. And sometimes they die. Sometimes they don't make it. I have seen people. I've been there at the bedside studying the Bible, begging. And maybe there's a glimmer of hope and then it just closes. And it's heartbreaking when it ends. But I'm going to be like Jesus and I want to love them to the very last moment. I want to keep reaching that olive branch out. I want to keep trying because that's my responsibility. Keep asking for the openness. Keep pursuing. Let me tell you, you may have lost a few of those battles, but there's lots of them ahead. And don't give up. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a close friend. Don't give up. As hard as they are, as, as, as stuck in their pride as they are, keep pursuing. Keep trying. And we may win some and we may lose some, but never quit. Jesus didn't quit. He kept trying. So at the end of the day, for these men, they were a little bit like Dr. Old. Right? They just couldn't admit that they were wrong. I'm going to leave you with one point, and we'll be done. And I really want you to think about this, because I think it's, it's the most important thing. The most important thing you and I can do every day in order to not be Dr. Old is to humble ourselves before God. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for me. Let us leave here humble every day. We're going to close out in prayer right now. We'll be back here next Sunday, 1030 a.m. Let's go to God in prayer. Father,